All right. Good afternoon, everyone, and thank you for joining the Boston Bar Association's webinar on environmental and energy public service opportunities during COVID. My name is Courtney Simmons, and I'm going to be one of the moderators today. Uh, I'm a litigation associate at Davis Mom, focusing on land use litigation. And I'm joined by my co-chair of the Pro Bono Public Service Committee of the BBA's Environmental and Energy Section. Jamil, you want to introduce yourself? Hi, everyone. I am an attorney with the Department of Interior, and as Courtney mentioned, a co-chair of the BBA's Environmental Law Section, Public Service Committee. And I quickly just wanted to also acknowledge our co-sponsors for today which is the Committee for New Lawyer Development, which focuses on bar coaching and career transitioning for new attorneys, and also the BBA's Committee for the Delivery of Legal Services, which focuses on improving access to legal services. Thanks, Jamil. So when we were thinking about designing this program, um, we really, um, as, as many of you may be familiar with, our job is part of the pro bono public service section is focused on a lot of, you know, actually getting out in the community, volunteering your time, meeting face-to-face -face with people, campaigning. And a lot of that we were unable to do because of COVID um, restrictions. So um, because we couldn't do a lot of those in-person gatherings or there were stay-at-home orders, we wanted to um, provide a platform and environment where we are still able to give information about how you can volunteer your time and your efforts in um, responsible ways, um, abiding by, you know, social distancing protocols, things like that. Um, but we just wanted to get the information out there because many, many people might, might not be aware that a lot of these programs are still available and there are oppor COVID-friendly opportunities for you to participate in and volunteer your time in during this pandemic. Um, and it's particularly important because um, the need for pro bono services and public services in the environmental sector did not go away during the pandemic. And if anything has grown as many of these groups and organizations are struggling to maintain the same level of services that they provide while uh, striving to garnish the same number of volunteer support that they might've had in pre-COVID conditions. Um, so, especially as people in certain communities might have been impacted more than others, and, you know, the focus might not have been on volunteer opportunities, but, you know, their own personal health, safety, financial problems. So, um, we just wanted to provide um, more of a connection between our members and these organizations that are still needing your help and assistance during this time. Um, also, we are heading into... You know, spring, warmer weather, we are in Earth Month, we have Earth Day next week. And so we just wanted to further encourage people to go out and um, volunteer their time and efforts in support of um, Earth Month and Earth Week and um, let you know about some exciting opportunities that are coming. So with that introduction, um, I wanted to turn it over to the panelists to introduce themselves and provide a little bit of background on their organization and the type of work that they do. Um, so who wants to kick it off? How about you, Dwayne? Dwayne Tyndall, Executive Director of Alternative for Community and Environment. We are located in Roxbury. 
and in short, we, we are known as ACE. ACE is a civil rights organization. ACE builds power, communities of color, and low-income communities to eradicate environmental racism, classism, create healthy and sustainable communities, and to achieve environmental justice. So a lot of times people think of us as an EJ organization. ACE was founded in 1993 as an advocacy activist-based EJ organization by Charlie Lord and Bill Chuckin, two white lawyers um, with a passion for social justice. Today, more than 25 years later, ACE is an organization composed of and led by folks that look like us. ACE is anchored in our home neighborhood of Roxbury and from these strong roots, we organize residents and build coalitions and we develop a really aggressive legal and regulatory framework to deal with um, MBTA and B BPDA issues in our community. So I would like, I think that's enough, right? Okay. Yes, thanks, Dwayne. Okay, thank and how about you, Heather? Thanks. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Heather Miller. I'm the General Counsel and Policy Director at the Charles River Watershed Association. Um, so we are an organization that is focused on protecting and enhancing the Charles River and its watershed. Um, we're made up of 35 cities and towns. Um, so most folks are really familiar with the lower basin of the watershed, which is kind of the Boston, Cambridge, Somerville area. Um, but our watershed extends pretty far west. Um, the headwaters are actually in Hopkinton, where um, Boston Marathon also begins. Um, so we were founded back in the 60s um, when the Charles River was really a place where people dumped their trash and open, it was kind of an open sewer. Um, there was sewage flowing directly into the river. So we've made a lot of progress since then. The river is much, much healthier than it used to be, but there are still some challenges um, particularly related to climate change and ensuring that our communities within the watershed are resilient to the impacts of climate change that we're already seeing, like increased flooding, um, increased heat impacts, drought. Um, we're actually already in a drought this year, which is very early, much earlier than usual. Um, so we are working in partnership with other environmental organizations, um, other grassroots advocacy groups, and with our watershed communities to try to address those current risks to the Charles River watershed. Great, thanks Heather. How about you, Paul? Yes, uh, good afternoon. Paul Sutton with the Boston Parks Urban Wilds Program and thanks to the BBA for organizing this webinar. Um, the city of Boston has an interesting portfolio of about 30 uh, properties, some only a couple acres, ranging up to all the way up to about 100 acres. And these are properties that were conserved way back in the 1970s and 80s. And um, not much was done with them. In more recent years, they've been restored and renovated and they're managed essentially for conser conservation and passive recreation. So they're, they're essentially nature parks. Um, last year during, the, um, during COVID, we saw an explosion of visitation to these sites as, the regular parks were um, getting very crowded and people were looking for um, spaces where they could um, basically go and be in a calm, beautiful setting. So these properties are really important for um, the city's environmental and social and mental health, I would say. Um, 
and uh, we're looking forward to this year uh, in introducing a hybrid way of uh, volunteering, which I can talk a little bit more later. Thanks, Paul. And last, Emily. Hi everyone, I'm Emily. I'm the Food and Farms Manager with Groundwork Somerville. Groundwork Somerville is a nonprofit founded in 2000 and we're focused on community engagement, environmental care and justice, fresh food access and youth engagement and um, employment initiatives. So a lot of our work in Somerville is focused on our urban farms and school gardens. We have a group of about 15 to 20 high school students who we employ every summer who learn about racial, social, environmental justice while they are working on the farm and biking around Somerville, providing low-income communities with access to fresh food. Um, and I'm yeah excited to be here and share more opportunities to volunteer with us this year. Great, thanks everyone. Um, so before we get started, I just wanted to remind all the attendees that we you should have received um, two handouts that were circulated. Um, one is with regards to this particular panel and the organizations that they represent, and it provides information about ways that you can volunteer and participate or become a member of these organizations, as well as specific upcoming events that are um, geared towards Earth Day, Earth Week, Earth Month, that sort of thing. Um, and then the second panel, the second handout that was provided um, was actually produced as part of our environment, the um, environmental and energy sections, um, environmental justice program back in the fall of 2020. And that is a more extensive um, list of different uh, pro bono nonprofit environmental organizations that are looking for specific legal services and pro bono work. So uh, definitely want to remind you of those and to check those out for additional information about how you can get involved and volunteer your time. So let's just jump into it. Um, so I think it'd be helpful for, um, for our listeners to get sort of an idea of the general um, volunteer and public service work that you um, usually do, whether that's legal or non-legal. And then how COVID has specifically impacted um, those types of programs and uh, what solutions you've come up with to sort of pivot or um, create alternative ways to um, have those same sort of volunteer opportunities. So anyone that wants to jump in first, floor is yours. So Ian, you want to go first? Sure. Um... So yeah, we have two major um, areas. One is our environmental justice legal services. Um, is is a is really the essential part of like the ACE legal work. Um, we provide legal and technical assistance to our allies and community groups, and mobilize legal and scientific resources to support organizing efforts throughout Boston. Our approach serves as a model for communities throughout the nation and for the broadening environment movement. We are the only neighborhood-based organization in Boston that have a full-time staff attorney. Since we have a history and origin of being started by lawyers, everything we do, our campaigns, our policy initiatives is tied back into a regulatory legal framework. And that's, that's the essence of ACE. So we have started the EJLS, 
back um, in full force. We have uh, 10 attorneys from like nine different organizations. Um, and we are, will be very aggressive looking at different regulatory and legal frameworks dealing with, you know, the MBTA um, and other environmental justice issues. The other piece that we're excited about is, it's called MEGEN, is the Massachusetts Environmental Justice Assistance Network that serves people in low-income communities of colors um, throughout New England. Um, this is something we, we, ACE has done for over 20 years. Um, it stopped in 2015. We are doing a kickoff in 2021. Um, it gave us, it will give frontline communities uh, a, a legal framework to deal with some environmental racism and environmental issues throughout New England. So we're really excited about that. And we are really looking forward to working with um, different attorneys regarding those issues. Um, one of the issues that we are facing that we have a lot of um, regional um, um, regional market-based solutions like Reggie and the Transit Climate Initiative that go across state lines. And it, and I think the MEGEN program will be one of those programs that could begin to push back and analyze the impact of market-based solutions that will impact many frontline communities. Thank you. Before we move off of Dwayne, uh, I know that we had talked a little bit about this before, but um, the the community that you serve, um, it, what, was the impact of COVID like felt, were they disproportionately impacted on top of their um, impacts from, you know, suffering as a environmental justice community? And like, how did your ability to address some of those community concerns um, was impacted by um, the COVID pandemic? Yeah, Roxbury was one of the hardest hit neighborhoods on one because of the generations of environmental racism inflicted on the neighborhood. We have, I believe, the highest asthma rate in the state. And the connection between the upper respiratory illnesses and COVID went hand in hand. So when COVID hits, um, we have fatalities in our communities. And the flip side is that since a lot of our people are quote unquote essential workers, translated many times kind of low paying frontline workers, we, we still have to go to work. <laughs> so the bus terminal, Numian station that used to be called Dudley station was still packed. We didn't have like a ghost town in, in Nubian station, not bus terminal. People still had to get on those buses and go to work. One, to pay rent, pay utility, food, and to keep their jobs because their jobs didn't close down. So the fight with the MBTA was to increase services um, and provide safer environments for both riders and drivers in Nubian Station. Um, the way we basically worked to fight this issue or battle this issue is that we worked with a lot of other neighborhood stakeholders, holders, partners, doing mutual aid associations, trying to be kind of innovative on the fringes, but the harsh reality and the outcome of COVID will be felt in the next couple of months when rents and utilities and food and the rising employment within our community is felt um, is 
the the safeguards and the safety nets are not as well established and we will be battling this issue on for the next three to <laughs> the next few years is not going to be an easy fix so we are just a cog in that machine of trying to um, provide services to our communities and um it's an ongoing battle and that's one of the reasons why um we need um lawyers to be a part of this process as we figure out the regulatory pushback on systems and figure out some legal frameworks how we could get some enforcement on existing regulations and laws thank you thanks rain yeah i just wanted to call attention to that that um, one of the side effects of, of COVID is a lot of the communities that were already you know disproportionately impact from environmental justice issues that was um exponentially like uh increased because of issues related to COVID and so um issues that they were already facing just were exacerbated because of COVID so I think it's important for people to keep in keep that in mind that um there are these these communities that were you know more detrimentally affected than others that really need um our both legal and um you know, social justice um, viewpoint when we are trying to get back and provide a community network for, for these areas. So thank you. Um, all right, Heather, do you wanna talk about um, the general types of volunteer services that the Charles River Watershed Association does and then how you've, um, what challenges you've had to meet because of COVID and how you develop some alternatives to uh, address those? Sure, absolutely. So there are a really wide variety of ways to get involved um, in public service opportunities um, with our organization. There's kind of what I would consider to be in the field opportunities. So going out and sampling water quality or participating in cleanups or removing invasive species. Um, and I think we'll talk a little bit more about some of those specific opportunities in a little bit. But um, there's also opportunities to get involved in our policy and advocacy work. Um, those are not as formal right now. Um, we're working on building up our capacity on that front, but um, always looking for people who live, particularly who live in communities within the watershed who are interested in getting involved in projects within their local communities. So um, we always need people on the ground who are aware of, of what's going on, what projects are being proposed, whether um, communities are considering local policies that impact water quality or climate resilience and are willing to help kind of follow those projects and processes. And um, we work with us at CRWA to weigh in and make sure that environmentally sound decisions are being made. Um, so I would encourage anyone who is interested in getting involved um, to please reach out. Um, there's also, it's already passed for this year, but we do a lobby day every year with a bunch of other river or, um, advocacy organizations. So we had a lobby for the rivers day back in March, um, where we met with legislators virtually across the entire state and just talked to them about the importance of clean and healthy rivers and some of the particular issues that we're really concerned about. Um, so there's lots of different opportunities, how it's been affected by COVID. Um, definitely our kind of on the ground in person work has changed um, and we're 
now that we have been doing this for a little while, we've had the chance to rethink how we can do some of those activities in a safe way. Um, so we are doing a cleanup again this year. We are doing some of our invasive species removal programs, but they will be socially distant. Um, most of our activities were um, asking people to kind of go out on their own time. So there won't be a set coordinated event where we have lots of people in the same place, but um, there's a lot of great work that can still be done, um, even on an individual basis with people just going out when they feel like it's safe um, and, you know, staying just to themselves or with their friends or family. Um, and then on kind of the, the advocacy side of things, a lot of that work has really continued. A lot of that work has shifted to be remote and virtual. Um, and in some cases, it's actually easier to attend public meetings uh, because you don't have to travel back and forth. You don't have to worry about childcare or other considerations that people had. Um, you can attend meetings right from your own home um, and you can participate in the process that way. So I would really encourage folks to, to get involved, whether it's um, in your local community or in other ways um, in just kind of understanding what's going on within with local environmental issues and um, figuring out how you can play an active role. And sometimes even just showing up at those meetings and voicing an opinion or a concern is incredibly impactful. And if you're not doing it, no one else might be doing it either. So um, there, I think there are lots of different opportunities. Thanks, Heather. Paul, how about you? Sure. Yeah, there, there, are, there are two ways uh, that folks can consider volunteering uh, for Boston Parks Urban Wilds program. Um, the main one is along the lines of, of stewardship. Um, we've traditionally in the calendar year between April and the end of October have a period where uh, volunteers can come out. Uh, typically it's in organized group events, come out and help uh, with stewardship of, of the sites themselves. Um, last year was pretty much a bust we did have um we had very limited most of our corporate nonprofit volunteers uh you know for obvious reasons had wanted to cancel uh in-person group events uh we did manage a few but what we ended up doing is using um a, a very tiny operations budget to uh, hire some contractors to do some of the most, uh, you know, safety related type of, of site stewardship. Um, but um, this year we're hoping that we can kind of get back on track with both uh, some organized events during that Earth Day week and then also some uh, standalone opportunities where people can work on their own, um, which I can talk about. Um, the, the other thing just to mention briefly is that Boston passed the Community Preservation Act, which creates a fund for uh, affordable housing, historic preservation and open space. And um, as part of that, Boston will have funds for acquiring open space for, for parks and uh, natural areas. And uh, I anticipate that the city could benefit greatly from some um, real estate legal expertise. Um, a lot of the, the conservation land that was um, acquired was done decades ago with nonprofits that were very savvy in that, that area. So I see that as one area where uh, attorneys with expertise in that area could potentially uh, partner with the city um, in land protection efforts. 
Yeah, I think that's a great opportunity. And I'm sure we have many listeners and members that would be perfectly suited for that role. So yeah, that sounds great. All right, Emily, what about you and Groundwork Somerville? Yeah, I'll share. Um, so our organization, like everyone, was definitely very impacted by COVID. Um, our youth program, which is usually in person at the farm, was 100% online last summer. And then in addition, all of the help and volunteers that we usually have at the farm, um, we weren't able to have any volunteers. And so um, we had that. And then at the same time, the impacts of COVID on increasing food insecurity in our neighborhoods, especially hardest hit on low-income immigrant and communities of color, um, that was a huge challenge for us. us and we really, um, I think, adapted to focus on growing fewer varieties of different kinds of crops and just focusing on growing. Um, I think there were about four things that we grew last summer to try to intensify and grow more of them. Um, and we were able to provide our community with over 2000 pounds of food from our very small fourth of an acre urban farm in Somerville. Um, and we work with um, Shape Up Somerville and a mobile farmer's market to be able to bring um, our world crops. So we grow a lot of foods that immigrant communities can't find in grocery stores. So Kowloo, Gilo, Lalu, um, and we were able to grow those foods and um, the mobile market um, drives to different housing developments, churches, schools to meet the needs, food needs in our community. Um, so yeah, we were really grateful to be able to kind of adapt and pivot to be able to meet the needs that we were seeing. Um, I think in terms of volunteer opportunities um, this year and how we're adapting with COVID, thankfully we are outside mostly. And so um, we are, we are gonna have um, monthly cleaning and greening events. We have a big one coming up um, this Saturday, April 24th to celebrate Earth Day. So definitely check out um, our cleaning and greening events. And then we'll also have opportunities to work on the farm and school gardens by limiting um, our capacity to just 10 people in these outdoor spaces at a time. And then I would also say, um, similarly to what Paul was talking about in terms of land protection, um, we are also could very much use skilled attorneys to help us. We are currently working to save our urban farm site in Somerville. So I think definitely with all the development in Somerville with the green line and everything, we definitely can use a lot of assistance advocating for the importance of public urban green spaces in our communities. Thanks, Emily. Yeah, hopefully we can uh, make that connection and there are uh, people out there that have the skills that, that you guys need. Um, I'm also pretty impressed that you were able to, um, you know, help address the food insecurity issue so much during COVID. Like, that's really impressive. Um, before we move on to the next subject, I'm just kind of curious, a couple of you touched upon this. How has the role of, like, using technology or social media sort of um, changed during the past year, year and a half? in terms of um, promoting your organization or advertising, getting volunteers, fundraising, that sort of thing? I'll go first. Um, I think it was a valuable tool to connect with stakeholders, uh, funders, just to let people know that we exist and still 
doing the work, but it's also show the limitations because we have elders that may not be as familiar with the technology. Um, we may have individuals that may, may, may cannot afford Wi-Fi and the technology. So you saw kind of like an age class divide relative to who could utilize that technologies. And sometimes the people that was in the most need wasn't able to utilize the technology we take advantage of. Yeah, that's a very good point to, to keep in consideration that it's, we take, we take for granted a lot of our ability to access this, this stuff or just our knowledge about these different platforms, but that might not be the case for um, many members of um, these communities that, that have been impacted, so. I'll jump into, we've also had to get a little bit more creative and, you know, we had already been starting to use more social media and more technology, but we had to very quickly get up to speed and figure out how we could really leverage those resources. Um, so early on, we created a virtual event series to, to continue kind of our connections with our members and supporters and people in the communities. Um, definitely. Social media and newsletters are, have been a, a really important way of getting information out. Um, but I totally agree with Dwayne about those limitations as well. There's there's some things about being able to meet and interact with people in person that you just can't replicate. Um, even though technology has had some benefits, it's, it's more convenient in some cases, it's more accessible in some cases, but um, definitely limiting in others. Anyone else have any other further comments on use of technology and social media? All right. Um, so my next question was um, now uh, you, some of you have like briefly touched upon it, but um, now I want to get into more of the details of what public service um, volunteer opportunities are presently available and how people can get involved. Um, so Dwayne, we actually had a question from the audience that relates to this. Um, and so it's, it's what, what legal initiatives has ACE undertaken or is currently undertaken? Maybe you can talk about some of your current campaigns that, that you guys are doing. Um, yeah, so um, the, way, the way we utilize like legal action is more as like kind of like carry a big stick and talk softly. The threat of legal action is many times we use to get results without doing the litigation because litigation is very involved and expensive. So one example is that um, during the recent MBTA cuts, they cut MBTA cut four major lines in our neighborhoods. And some of those lines was, was connected to community health centers and um, disability. Um, the, and it was another center that helped people that were visually impaired um, navigate the um, public transportation system. And we had a press conference and I said, H will pursue regulatory and legal remedies to deal with this issue. Um, we was able to get into the Boston Globe um, with a think piece about the impacts of those cuts. And very recently the MBTA restore those services to our community. One part was 
community and system engagement. The other part was media engagement, but also the potential of having legal resources to address the regulatory issue and possible even litigation. So that's how we kind of leverage our legal resources. So because of because of the potential of the legal and regulatory enforcement, it played a big part of bringing MBTA to a different point where we can negotiate having those services return to our community. Can you speak about some of the um, other current campaigns that the ACE is working on right now? Um, yes, we are currently working on we just passed the climate like a lot of the a lot of the work is kind of like tedious grind work so the climate bill is just passed so we are kind of looking how that will be enforced what type of regulations that we could utilize and maximize for our communities um we partnered with various public service um, um agencies like conservation law foundation to um, do a lot of legislative work. We also is we are doing um, the diesel emission reduction ordinance, which was passed like five years ago, but never enforced. So we are again pushing on regulatory legal aspects of that. And those are those are the type of cases that we are pushing through right now. Great. We Thank we haven't litigated the what the other the thing we are also we did a campaign against third party predatory um third party predatory energy companies that was doing door to do door knocking during the pandemic and with our work with lawyers for civil rights props out to lawyers for civil rights and our legal staff we was able to get the attorney general to put like a a ban on door to door uh, solicitation in poor working class neighborhoods um, through the attorney general office. So that's that's the type of example that we use our legal resources to kind of influence policy. Great, thank you. Thank you. Heather, you want to talk about um, some of your upcoming events and current volunteer opportunities? Yeah, so the big one we have coming up is our annual Earth Day Charles River cleanup. Um, instead of a one day event that's going to be a week long event this time around, um, where everyone is going to um, sign up but then go out on their own um, to actually do the cleanup. Um, and that involves basically picking up litter, removing invasive species, assisting with some park maintenance along the river. Um, and there's a sign up on our website and it's in the handout as well. And there's a lot more information on that. Um, that's an event that's been going on for a long time. We partner with other groups um, along the Charles River to bring lots and lots of volunteers out and have this big cleanup event every year. Um, a few other ongoing opportunities. Um, we have a monthly water quality sampling program. So we have volunteers who go out to different points across the entire river um, and take water quality samples. Um, everyone goes out at the same time on the same day, once a month. Um, and that's a great way to get involved um, for someone who's looking for kind of a longer term commitment. Um, those volunteers, um, some people have been doing it for 
decades. Um, they, they really enjoy it. Um, and it's a great way to, to really interact with the river and get out on some early mornings um, to do some water sampling. Um, we also do monitoring for what are called benthic macroinvertebrates. Um, and I'm a law and policy person, not a science person, so please don't ask me specifically what that means. But essentially, um, we're looking for small aquatic animals and insects that live in our streams and rivers. And that tells us about the health of those water bodies. So we go out and we survey and we basically document what bugs and other critters um, we find. And that gives us a good indication that this is a healthy water body or um, it's declining and we need to figure out what's going on. Um, so that's a really important program and that there's a specific training for that um, to know what to look for. Um, then we also do some invasive plant cleanup events. Um, those typically happen over the summer. Um, and those are really targeted more towards groups like corporate events um, where we can get um, a lot of people to go out all at once and pull some invasive species. Um, and then we also have programs like River Ambassadors, Clean Charles Crew. These are um, just different ways to get involved with the organization. Um, River Ambassadors do a lot of educational outreach. So going to events or in schools and explaining Kind of what a watershed is and why we protect our rivers. Um, and then our Clean Charles crew um, helps to organize um, an event over the summer. I'm not quite sure if it's happening this summer or not, but um, that is really targeted at getting more young professionals involved with the organization and with protecting the Charles River. So there's lots of different opportunities. Um, we have a volunteer page on our website, which I know is also listed in the handout. Um, so we encourage everyone to check those out for more details. Heather, quick question. So with regards to, um, I know because the Charles River is so long and the watershed's extensive, are these events, um, are certain ones specific to certain areas of the river or are other ones like all encompassing? Can you just speak about like how people can identify like what particular like location these events are, are at or how they can um, decide whether, you know, a certain, maybe there's a certain area that um, typically like needs more volunteers as opposed to like the right downtown Boston area along the Esplanade? Yeah, great question. So a lot of our events are spread out across the watershed. Um, so we have folks who go out and take water quality samples at different points from the headwaters all the way to the lower basin of the river. Um, same with some of the, the um, species monitoring, um, invasive species bulls. These are issues that we find throughout the watershed. Um, and it, I think, um, you know, there's, there's always a need for volunteers in all of these areas. Um, certainly um, for some events, you know, they're more accessible to Boston or to Cambridge, um, but definitely encourage people in, in any part of the watershed to look for opportunities because um, they're not really specific to any one area. Great, thanks. Paul, would you like to discuss some of the uh, Parks and Recreation Department's um, upcoming events and different initiatives? Sure. Um, just to mention, the city's uh, website, boston.gov, has a calendar listing section on the bottom of the, the, uh, the uh, front page there. And that has day-to-day a, a -day events going throughout the city, but ours are also listed there. 
um, in May, there's a couple of cool events. We're partnering with uh, Mass Audubon, Boston Nature Center to do um, some ecology classes and uh, planting events in May. But the ones that I wanted to spotlight for April are coming up on April 17th in Roslindale. Um, and then April 24th, that's the, the following Saturday in Mattapan at Mattahunt Woods. Uh, these are both um, registration events, group events, they're outdoor, uh, we'll have distancing protocols, whatnot, but uh, those were chosen because that those are sites where the city has made huge gains in acquiring more land and growing these sites. Roslindale Wetlands, that's the first one. Um, then the second one, Mattahunt Woods, that's another site that's the city's acquiring more land and has just approve more money for um, for a capital renovation project there. So those are two um, registration events. And then the, the third is for people who just want to do something on their own on actual Earth Day, April 22nd, Thursday, um, park staff is meeting in Franklin Park and anyone can come pick up supplies to do a cleanup in any park or urban wild that they'd like to do a little cleanup and um, that would be hugely appreciated. The situation is it's the natural areas that really need the help. The, the, the playgrounds, ball fields, they all have staff which take care of them every day. It's the conservation lands that have no permanent dedicated field staff. Um, so simple things like clearing trails of storm damage and trash pickup those are you know hugely beneficial. So those are those are a, a, a few things, and I think they're on that pamphlet, Courtney, that you um, put together. Yes, yes, the information is is on that pamphlet. Um, I also wanted to just ask you um, generally. I know you talked about um, there's like over thirty of these urban wilds. Um, is there a place where people can, you know, identify urban wild in their neighborhood and like determine what is the closest one to them? Yes. So there is a, if you just um, search Boston urban wilds, it'll bring you to the city urban wild page. And there's a, it is being uh, up, upgraded as we speak, but there's a breakdown by neighborhood, whether uh, Roxbury or Roslindale you'll get a breakdown of what urban wilds are in the in that area. We have finished a map um, of all the urban wilds and we're just refining it and it should be posted uh, shortly, but anyone can email me and um, I can certainly provide assistance on uh, where we could use a little extra help perhaps. Great, thank you. And in terms of, I know you were focusing specifically on um, April 22nd, I believe, of the Franklin Park, but if people just want to, on any day, go out and, um, you know, go to one of these urban wild areas, what, what is the type of, um, you know, volunteer uh, work that you're looking to be done in, in just generally? Yeah, some of these sites are, are huge. They've got huge street frontages, parkway frontages, um, and... Typically, you know, between November and April, 
there's been a lot of, um, typically there's been a lot of uh, trash accumulation, plastics. We're really trying to get plastics out of the environment, out of our waterways. Um, there's a lot of education to be done along those lines. Um, but uh, so simply, you know, having folks assist with that. Also the trail systems, we've, uh, we're making some progress, but definitely over the winter, um, there's been incredible storm damage um, and we're focusing on the really heavy stuff, but if volunteers uh, are up for walking the trails and just you know moving uh, branches that have fallen down off to the sides of the trail, that would be a, um, that'd be a huge plus. And is there a mechanism um, if people, you know, come across like a larger downed tree or, you know, some sort of potentially dangerous like trash item um, that they can alert you guys to, to have someone, you know, come out and assist them with it or just to let them know that it's there? Yes, definitely. Uh, yeah, you can use either the city's uh, 311 app or 311 phone to just, you know, report the location and the issue. And uh, the app is really easy to use just uh, with photo. It's all geolocated. So that's that's the best way, I think. Great. That sounds good. All right, Emily, you want to talk about some current available volunteer opportunities and some of your upcoming Earth Day events? Yeah, great. Um, I'll talk about three main things and three ways that you can get involved with us this year. So the first is our school gardens. We have nine school gardens that we care for in Somerville. So we're looking for folks who maybe live near one of the school gardens or are just interested in helping care for them. Um, so you would go once a week regularly to water, weed and harvest when it's time. Um, and then as well, we are interested if people are in, are up for doing any of our education um, events at schools. We have a school garden coordinator who's always looking for assistant educators or people who are up for working with youth. Um, our kind of second place or area to get involved volunteering is our South Street Farm. That's the urban farm that I had mentioned. Um, and. We'll be doing a couple different things. We'll have a weeding Wednesdays. So if you just wanna get out for an hour on Wednesday mornings and come help weed the farm. Otherwise, we are gonna have a more committed volunteer opportunity for people who wanna take on some more leadership roles. We're gonna have um, like a volunteer lead program where folks can get trained, go through an orientation and then commit to an hour a week helping at the farm. But then we'll also open up and host the farm. And we're gonna hold regular open hours for community members, anybody who wants to walk by, maybe eat lunch at the farm or just take a walk. Um, so those volunteers would be kind of hosting the space in a sense. Um, and then I would say the third key way to get involved this year um, is through our monthly cleaning and greening program. So we're gonna be partnering with different nonprofits and organizations around Somerville to help to clean up our spaces and our communities. So the first one we're going to kick it off with is our Earth Day event on April 24th that will take place from 9 a.m. to 11 and we'll have four different locations. We're partnering with the Mystic River Watershed Association. So we'll be at three different parks along the Mystic River and then our South Street Farm as well. So be sure you can sign up for that. We'll be 
picking up trash um, and doing various other cleaning and greening activities. So um, those are some of the key ways you can get involved and get outside, um, interact safely with other people. Um, and then I would say the last one is just if you're interested in um, kind of a more longer term working with us on land protection, those would be the key, key ways to get involved this year. Thanks. Um, brief follow-up question. I know for your cleaning and greening, um, you mentioned that you do them at, you know, various different sites, including your, your, your local gardens. Are those um, primarily in Somerville or around that area? Or when you partner with like the Mystic River Watershed Association, it sort of reaches like surrounding communities. I'm just trying to get a sense of where people can expect um, that these opportunities will be located. Yeah, they'll all be in Somerville. So different neighborhoods, okay. parks, um, locations within Somerville. Okay, great. We did have a question for the panelists. Um, and anyone uh, feel free to jump in and answer this question. Um, the question is, can the attendees talk about how urban wilds and waterways help mitigate the urban heat island effect in dense urban areas? Anyone want to jump in on that? Sure, sure. Be willing to say, say a few words. Yeah, so we know, we know that there's a direct correlation, right, between, you know, environmental and, and human health and green spaces, um, you know, we, there was mention a little earlier of, of things such, uh, problems such as health problems, such as asthma, you know, our, our parks and urban wilds are so, so key in so many respects. I mean, there's so many different functions that they perform. I mean, on the most basic level, right, they, uh, they provide intense, uh, incredible amount of shading, right, to actually cool uh, cool parts of the city off and the city is actively trying to plant more trees and, and increase our green spaces so that the so that our streetscapes are, are cooler and healthier. Um, certainly as, as far as uh, CO2 uptake, production of oxygen, right, uh, filtration of, of pollutants in the air. Um, you know, I think I think we know that we know that these areas are so key uh, to help me mitigate all of the health uh, problems associated with incredible heat, right? Heat intensity. Um, that's why now the city really is moving forward with a new urban forest plan to try to green up all of the neighborhoods in a way that'll make the city more healthy as far as living and for us to be able to sustain, sustain you know, incredible heat waves uh, that we now are experiencing earlier and earlier. Heather, did you have anything? Yeah, I'll comment on that too. So when we work on climate resilience in our communities and the watershed, we're really looking at how we bring nature back into the built environment um, because of all of those benefits that Paul just talked about. Um, so you know, as a watershed organization, we are very concerned about flooding and stormwater pollution, but those same things that help us to deal with those issues, trees, wetlands, um, you know, more, more green space, um, daylighting streams that have historically been buried in pipes underground, 
Um, those types of things also help us to be more climate resilient in other ways. They help us to be more resilient to drought. They, they definitely alleviate heat island impacts. And um, the maps are pretty shocking when you look at the maps of where the most severe heat impacts are overlaid with where tree canopy in particular is. There's a direct correlation there. The hottest areas have the lowest amounts of tree canopy. So we know that bringing trees in particular back into those more developed environments can have a huge impact on reducing those heat impacts and improving overall public health. There's just so many benefits that come from these natural features. If, if only we can find a way to incorporate them back into the way that we develop and design and build things. Great, thank you both. Well, Craig, in, in Roxbury, um... They wanted to cut down the streetscape on Melanie Cass Boulevard, and we pushed back, and we was able to preserve the streetscape on Melanie Cass Boulevard. So it's planting more, preserving what we have, and bringing awareness of heat resiliency, especially in our neighborhoods that we may be like one heat wave extend a heat wave away from some serious health consequences in our communities. So that's something that we are paying attention to. Thank you. Jamila, do you have any um, additional questions for our panelists or think we covered it all? I think we got it all, but I just wanna say thank you so much because for myself, I found so many opportunities that are available and like the urban farm and Dwayne, the work that you guys have done and helping with Nubian Square and Paul, you know, being able to go to Franklin Park. These are all areas that I'm familiar with and I really look forward to being able to participate. And I think it's great that people can go out and do it on their own or with their families. So thank you so much for, you know, taking the time to tell us about all these opportunities. Yeah, definitely. Thank, thank you all. Um, and before we break, I just wanted to open it up to all the panelists. If there's anything else, any message or um, you know thing you want to get across to our, the participants listening, um, now you have an opportunity to to say anything else that we didn't address here, or if you just want to generally speak about about anything in particular. I'll just say thank you, and um, please reach out. We'd, we love to get more people involved. So um, please don't hesitate to reach out with any interest you may have in getting more involved. I would just say this the same thing too. Yeah, thanks for organizing this, this uh, webinar. And just for folks to remember, you know, it's not just this April, May period, but reach out to us any time of the later in the year, in the fall in particular. And we can tailor an event if an event is something that's desired, or again, we can provide these opportunities of people to kind of work on their own at a time that works for them. Thank you. Well, it's real quick. Um, thank you again. Um, when I started ACES, a civil rights organization, I always remind folks the civil rights movement wouldn't exist without the legal framework, without dedicated lawyers. Um, we are always looking for um, legal folks to join the movement. So thank you. Thanks, Dwayne. I'll just say thank you, everyone. Um, and also, if you are interested in 
getting involved or organizing a volunteer workday. Um, we are also very open to different requests and very flexible for your interests and needs. So don't hesitate to reach out. Thanks, Emily. Yeah, I'll just remind uh, all the attendees again about those two handouts that were circulated. Um, the first being uh, particular with regards to the uh, panelists and participants for this program. And that really goes into more detail and gives you links to different websites where you can get more information about current opportunities to volunteer your time and um, that particular you know, Earth Day events that are upcoming in the next few weeks. So that's very helpful. In addition, we have the uh, pro bono legal services um, handout that we provided that um, really it's, I think it's about 20 different organizations that participated um, in, in putting that together. And that is a, a great resource if you're looking for um, ways to give back your you know, legal education, legal services to some of these nonprofit organizations that really need the help whether that is um, you know, just reviewing policy things, working on campaigns, um, reviewing contracts, whatever it may be, um, you'll see from the handout, it is a wide breadth of, of skills and services. So I'm sure um, if you are available and you have the time, there is a match out there for you. And it would be great if um, you would just take a few minutes to peruse that and see if there's anything that um, you think would might be a good fit for you. So again, thank you all for our uh, panelists for participating in this event and um, sharing all these wonderful opportunities that are available. And uh, I hope that people get out there and uh, happy Earth Day, happy Earth Week, happy Earth Month. Great, thank you all so much. Thank you to all of our panelists and organizations. Thank you to all of our attendees. Apologies if you hear my dog drinking water in the background. Um, and again, it, this is all recorded and you can find it in our Learn Online page in just a few business days. Thank you all so much. Bye. Perfect. Thanks. Bye.